0: Chapter 15 of The Radio Gunner by Alexander Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Harbor at Sunset It was an impressive procession of ships that steamed into Punta Delgada two days after the great battle. As the Delaware at the head of the column, battle-scarred from stem to stern, passed the supply ships and fleet tenders anchored in the roadstead, the shout that went up seemed as if it would lift the vault of heaven. For miles astern, the battleships stretched out in an apparently endless line, while the destroyers and cruisers lined both flanks. The disabled craft, including the surrendered ships of the enemy, followed more slowly at a greater distance while those unable to steam were still waiting near the scene of the action for ocean-going tugs to arrive and tow them in. In the United States, not a hint of an impending naval crisis had filtered through into the daily press. So, when the news of the victory came, the people were fairly dazed by it. Stirring as it was, and great as was the rejoicing throughout the land, the full meaning of it was scarcely realized at first, for the extent to which the enemy depended on his fleet was not understood by the general public. But the heads of the coalition government in Constantinople understood and cursed their lot and trembled in their shoes. And the British Admiralty understood and lost no time instigating the foreign office in London to make certain significant representations to Washington, which figured largely in the negotiations that followed. Before long, overtures from Constantinople concerning peace were received in Washington and London. They were met by a firm and solid front on the part of the Allies. Nothing but unconditional surrender would be acceptable. The Constantinople leaders, being better endowed with wits than with morale, had little disposition to prolong a futile struggle or continue a losing game, especially as they held the Mediterranean powers united by a slender thread of intrigue rather than by unity of spirit. Their control of the sea irrevocably lost to them, their armies were doomed to ultimate defeat. Therefore, after some clever attempts at bargaining for terms, which were coolly and flatly rejected by the Allies, they agreed to unconditional surrender. With explosive force, the news spread through the Western world, like a titanic peal of thunder echoing from mountain crest to valley and reverberating throughout the land. The bells rang, and all the populace gave themselves to wild joy or solemn thanksgiving. As soon as the surrender had been made, the Allied fleet proceeded to Gibraltar to take possession. At the first opportunity for shore liberty, Evans found Kendrick, and for hours they talked over the events since they had separated in the dark on the shore at Punta Delgada. The tales which Kendrick told of his adventures in finding his way to the desired post at a radio transmitter fairly made Evans's blood run cold a kaleidoscopic sequence of hardships, narrow escapes, and undreamed-of expedients to outwit the enemy, long hours in hiding, disguises, brazen effrontery, and lightning decisions in the face of danger, all told, with the unconcern of one used to living in that sort of thing, kept Evans enthralled, now laughing, now as nervous as if himself facing the danger of discovery. Before leaving, Evans arranged to have the kayak exhumed from her hiding place and sent back to her owner. June was in its prime when Evans, on his release from active duty, returned to his home, a private citizen. He went to the university where, before the war, he had been engaged in research and asked if he might resume his former position as associate in physics and continue the researches which had been interrupted. Some there were in the university who looked askance at the giving of valuable laboratory space to one who had held no more distinguished a position in the war than Radio Gunner. But there stood his unique apparatus which had taken him years of patient labor to assemble and which no one in the world but he could use. Fortunately, the head of the physics department understood this and his wish prevailed. Evans assured that his cherished laboratory was his once more returned to it. The apparatus stood as he had left it, but covered with the dust of two long years. A flood of happy memories returned to him, of days and nights spent in enthralling quests. He began eagerly to overhaul and test the apparatus in preparation for the renewed attack on the great problems which awaited his long-deferred experiments for their solution. For a few days, he tinkered with the intricate assortment of instruments and devices, inspecting parts here, making minor repairs on them there, looking over old notes and endeavoring to plan his campaign for renewed research. But as the hot July days wore on, his brain seemed to balk at the task. He realized that he was tired with the deep-seated fatigue which a day's rest or a week's rest will not cure. On the one hand, the din of a great naval action still echoed in his ears. On the other, he heard the call of the sea and the wild New England shore. I'll make a better job of this in September, he said to himself, and closing his laboratory for the summer, he went to New Bedford, where soon he was splicing ropes and helping the riggers at the shipyard put the petrol in commission. In a few days, he was again at the wheel of his beloved boat, the sails pulling hard in the fresh southwest wind. Leaving New Bedford, he headed for the Maine coast. Once more alone in his seaworthy little catch, he cruised along the coast by easy stages, northward and eastward, farther and farther from the crowded habitats of man to the spruce-clad, rocky islands off Maine. Off Seguin he stood well out to sea, the gentle rocking of the boat on the ocean swell lulling him into a happy reverie as she glided along before the summer breeze. Passing the Georges and the endless labyrinth of islands in Penobscot Bay, he came at last to Mount Desert Island, where Mortimer, breaking away from his desk in Washington, joined him for a cruise into the unfrequented waters beyond the Scudic. Here there are bays and harbors seldom visited by the great stream of cruising yachts, where, over dense forests of spruce that rise from the water's edge along a rugged shoreline, great ospreys wheel and scream, and in countless mossy nooks in the depth of the wood close by the sound of the surf, the witchery of nature's solitude casts a spell over the lonely wanderer. Into such a bay, as the gorgeous summer afternoon drew to a close, the petrel steered her course, her sails beginning to droop as the breeze gave way to the calm of evening. Two happy men sat lazily in her cockpit, gazing over the placid water into the enchanted forest that lined the shore ahead of them. Through the day, while bounding over the sparkling blue waves, their talk had drifted on as the spirit moved them from one phase of the war to another. Evans delighted Mortimer with his pictures of the life in the Navy and sidelights on the various admirals and others who had figured in the official doings. He told of his talk with Fraser in the Borgia Garden and the conferences that followed, tales which never reached another mortal ear. The opal tints of approaching sunset were playing in kaleidoscopic reflection on the restless surface of the water, and the dying zephyr just sufficed to give the petrol steerage way as she headed for a snug little cove among the spruce trees. The conversation had drifted through all phases of the war to the final action, and Mortimer was for the first time receiving a clear exposition of the underlying strategy and tactics. Evans explained how the placing of every unit of the fleet was worked out to ensure the greatest strength in case of every conceivable unforeseen contingency and how, guided by the mastermind of Fraser, Admiral Johnson's fighting spirit had driven home the decisive blow. The sun had set and both sea and sky were aflame with gorgeous colors, while the dark, pointed spruce trees on the shore, now close at hand, cast mobile reflections dancing on the undulating surface of the cove. The anchor splashed and the chain rattled down, and then the sails were lowered and furled for the night. Late into the twilight, the two comrades sat watching the colors fade in sea and sky as the great chapter of history, just closed, was unfolded in reminiscence before them. "'Jim,' said Mortimer, "'I know you prefer to work in the dark, "'but it makes me uncomfortable to have you go without recognition.' I want to have some open acknowledgement of the nation's gratitude to you to ease my own feelings. Would you mind if I did something about it? Evans gave his friend a look that spoke his depth of friendship. I am well content as it is, he said. That is something of a boast, and sometimes I don't live up to it. But I know that in my better moods, I'm not bothered that way. The pleasure of praise tends to cloy, Please give recognition to my better self and let the reward be always, as now, in the doing. The End End of Chapter 15 End of The Radio Gunner by Alexander Forbes